How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you. Uh, you know, for those of us like Rick and Matt and Chuck and Luke who've been able to travel around and see other congregations, it's been really fun. Like, unfortunately, you guys don't get to do that. You're here, but we get to travel around and see the other congregations. And it's so neat to see the difference in the congregations just culturally. Uh, one of the things that is known about Sherwood is that it feels like a family. That's what everyone talks about when they come in, is it just feels like a sweet family. And that is so true. This is actually my third time with you guys. You probably don't realize that. I haven't actually taught here before. Uh, but we visited uh, the first time back when uh, Colossae Sherwood was first starting at Bella Via. Is that the right word? Okay, Bella Via. Uh, so we came and visited then, and then my wife and I came the last Sunday of 2018, and you kind of had the open mic day where you're just passing around the microphone talking about all that God has done in the last year, and it was such a sweet time. Uh, again, it just felt like family. It felt like we belonged and we were part of this thing. So uh, thank you for your welcome uh, and your kindness to us each time we're, we're out here. Well, as you know, uh, the Colossae congregations are in a series collectively uh, for about six weeks on a series we've just called Vision. And it's not this vision of where we think the Lord is taking us or where we think the church is headed. It's a vision of what we believe God has invited us into, the type of life that God has invited us to be a part of. And we're covering several topics in this series. We'll put these topics up on the screen. We're covering hospitality, generosity, collaboration, celebration, and community. And several weeks ago, uh, you guys began the series by talking about how all of these things are to be deeply rooted in the gospel, to be deeply rooted in the gospel. And this week, we are going to cover the first topic on that slide, biblical hospitality. Now, I want to set up that, that topic by telling you a story. And this is a story that I've only shared publicly a few times, and in just a moment, you will understand why I don't talk about this story very often. Uh, it, is, it is one of my least proud moments in life, definitely my least proud moment as a husband, and perhaps my most embarrassing and least proud moment as a man in general. But I feel like you guys are extended family, and this is a safe place to share, so don't make me regret what I'm about to do. <laughs> My wife and I got married on August 6, 2011. Here's a picture of us on our wedding day. We were babies. And uh, it was such a wonderful day. But we got married in the summer, late summer of 2011. And I am a huge fan of Oregon summers. Like, I love the sunshine. I think the sunshine is God's gift to us because he loves us and wants us to be happy. And so I, when we got married, I decided that we wouldn't take our honeymoon in the summer. We would actually postpone the honeymoon until the winter. So we would soak up the sunshine in Oregon the rest of the summer. And then later, late November, early December, we would go on our honeymoon. And early on in our wedding prep, we made the decision that my wife would be responsible for the wedding and I would be responsible for the honeymoon. I didn't want her to have to think about anything in regards to the honeymoon. And so I said, you, you focus on the wedding. I'll take care of the honeymoon details. So I, I spent months and months preparing for the honeymoon. I spent hours upon hours researching the best places to go, the best resorts, the best cruise lines. And after tons of research, I kid you not, I spent hours researching this. I landed on a cruise that was going to take us from Florida through the Eastern Caribbean, and we were going to hit several islands along the way. And the plan was that we would fly to Florida. My parents live in Jacksonville, Florida. We would fly to, to my parents' house, we would stay one night with them, and then we would rent a, or borrow their car and drive six hours south to Fort Lauderdale, where we, we'd get on our boat and, and go on this cruise. So November rolls around, 
and we're still in that honeymoon phase. It's time to go on our official honeymoon trip. We fly to Florida. We stay one night at my parents' house. We get up super early the next morning. We borrow their car, and we start driving south to Fort Lauderdale. Now, we get to Fort Lauderdale to the the terminal where you pull up and park your car. If you've ever been on a cruise, you, you know this, but if you haven't, let me kind of fill you in. You drive up to a little kiosk. You hand them your ticket. They see which cruise you're on, and then they tell you where to park. And you go park there, and then you get on your boat, and you can leave your car in the parking lot. So we pull up to the little kiosk, and uh, we're all smiles, and my wife hands me the tickets, and I hand the ticket to the lady working at the counter, and and I casually mention that we're on our honeymoon because I'm trying to get a free upgrade and all that stuff. (laughs) And uh, I hand the ticket to her, and the lady looks at our ticket, and she just looks kind of confused. That's weird. And, uh, And she looks back at me to see if I will react. And I'm like, what are you looking at? And she looks back at our ticket. She types something into the computer. She looks back at our ticket, and then she just takes a deep breath. like, And she looks at me with so much compassion in her eyes. And she said, Mr. Peterson. And then she looked across the car at my wife and said, Mrs. Peterson. She goes, I don't know how to, how to break this news to you, so I'm just going to say it. Your boat left yesterday. I, I was there. I know. It was... My heart sunk. I, I honestly, I started crying. <laughs> and I, I looked back at this lady. And uh, with, probably without a lot of compassion or kindness, uh, it wasn't very godly of me. I said, listen, ma'am, maybe you're new to the job, but you're wrong. Can I have my tickets back? She handed me my tickets, and I, I looked at it. And clear as day on the ticket, it said November 28th. And I said, Katie, what is today? And she said, November 29th. We showed up a day late and completely missed the boat. <laughs> so I, I look at this lady again, tears in my eyes. I said, ma'am, what do we do? We're, we're on our honeymoon. And she said, Mr. Peterson, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. We'll make sure everything's okay. She said, did you have traveler's insurance? And I said, no. What kind of idiot buys traveler's insurance? <laughs> and she said, the kind that shows up a day late for his honeymoon. <laughs> so... It was funny at the, it was not funny at the time, but it is funny. It is funny now. So <laughs> that's how I felt right there. Uh, so I said, ma'am, like, that, what do I do? Like, what, what are our options here? And she said, well, Mr. Peterson, the way I see it, you have three options. She said, option number one is you just turn around and you go back to wherever you came from. I said, ma'am, where I came from was my parents' house. And, like, my parents are in town visiting today. I love them. I have a ton of respect for them. I didn't want to spend my honeymoon in my childhood bedroom across the hallway from them. You understand, right? So I said, ma'am, that's not an option. What's option number two? And she said, option number two is you buy another ticket for a boat that's going to be leaving this afternoon. You can see all the same islands. And I said, okay, what's the going rate on a cruise that leaves in three hours? And she said, well, if you had traveler's insurance, it'd be pretty cheap. But since you don't, it's full price, $5,000. Now, at this time in our life, we didn't have that kind of money. We didn't even have a credit card with that limit on it, so there was, that was not an option. So I said, what's our third option? So she said, the third option is if you can figure out where your boat is headed to, which island it's going to be at, and catch up to it, they'll let you on the boat. You just got to get there somehow. And I said, listen, that's not a great option, but it sounds like our best bet. So we turn around. They won't even let us into the parking lot. They make us turn around in shame at the gate and go to an empty parking lot down the road. So we make it to the empty parking lot. Now, if you thought this was the bad part, this is, we're really just getting started here on the, the horror of our honeymoon. So 
we turn around, we go to the empty parking lot, and I call customer service of the cruise line, and I, I tell her our sob story. She said, Mr. Peterson, I'm so sorry, probably laughing at me to her coworkers that are sitting around her. She said, we'll, we'll help you out. We'll, we'll figure this out. She said, it looks like your cruise is going to be landing in Turks and Caicos, which is just a little nation of islands off the coast of Florida. Uh, and it'll be there at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. If you can get to the, that island by tomorrow morning, you can get on the boat, and I'll let the captain know you're coming. And I said, that's perfect. We'll do that. Where do we need to fly to? And she said, you need to fly to airport code PLS. So I got out a pen. I wrote it down, PLS. I said it back to her. Airport code PLS? Yes, fly to airport code PLS. So hang up with her. She calls the captain, says they're on their way. I look up and find that there's a flight leaving the Miami airport, which is an hour away from the port, that will get us to this airport, PLS, that afternoon. So I toss the phone to my wife. I start driving to the Miami airport, and I said, Katie, buy two one-way tickets from Miami airport to airport code PLS. So we get to the Miami airport. We go through check-in. We go through security. We make it to the gate, and we have made it. Like, we, we made it. But we realized that we're now flying to an island that we had no plans prior to this of staying at. Like we, at this point, we don't even know if there are hotels on this island. So, but we got to figure out where we're going to stay when we get there. So I have this idea that just to be safe, well, let's find a hotel that's close to the port where the boat is going to be landing the next morning so that we don't risk missing the boat again. So on my phone, I pull up a map of the island and showing where the airport was, where we would be flying into and a map of the island showing where the boat is going to be landing. And I'm going to try to find a hotel in between those two things. So I have my phone and my wife's phone. And I start looking at it, and I notice that the islands appear to be different. And no matter how much I turn the phone or zoom in or out, they're not the same island. What I was just beginning to figure out in that moment and would later realize fully is that the customer service lady, who's probably not in the right profession, gave us the wrong airport code. So we are now flying to an island that prior to that exact moment, we had no idea even existed. So we have to make a decision. They're boarding our plane now. We have to make a decision. Do we just cut our losses and go home? Or do we get on a plane and go to this island and figure it out when we get there? And we made the decision as a a new family to get on the plane and figure it out when we got there. So we get on this plane not knowing what lies ahead. Now, to make a long story medium length, um, and just so you're not like wondering what happened the rest of the time, two airplane rides later in one very, very shady night in a hotel in some, on some random island, we did catch up to our cruise ship and we had an amazing cruise and we only missed one day of our, our trip. Our, our, our cruise was great, but it did get a little worse at the end and I'll, I'll wrap up here. When our boat came back, guess where it did not come back to? The Miami airport. That's right. It came back an hour away, which we realized as it was pulling into port. This was back before Uber and Lyft was a thing. So this was a taxi or ride away from the airport. We get back to the airport, and this is the last thing I'll say, and it's the worst. (laughs) To realize that I had parked an hourly parking for nine days. (laughs) Okay. Okay. my poor wife. It, you know, you think if I tell this story enough, it gets less embarrassing. It doesn't. It just hurts every time. Okay, what in the world does that have to do with biblical hospitality? Well, not much directly, but let me try to connect the dots here for you. Here's why I tell you that long story. I had spent 
hours and hours researching that cruise. I had looked at that reservation dozens of times. I thought about that trip for months. I had all the excursions planned. I knew the best restaurants to eat at. And yet I somehow completely missed the most important aspect of the trip, the departure date. This morning, we're going to be talking about biblical hospitality. And as we will see in just a moment, this idea of biblical hospitality is found all over your scriptures. And yet, for the majority of my discipleship to Jesus, it was an aspect that I completely missed. I have spent years following Jesus, years studying, memorizing, teaching this book, years knowing the the right thing to say to someone if they told me they were struggling in their faith. And yet I somehow, and all of that, completely missed this aspect of following Jesus. And my fear, if I'm honest, my fear is that the church in the West at large has missed it as well. At best, we've misunderstood the idea of hospitality. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, normally I would prefer to just be in one text and we would stay there the whole time, but because it's this theme that we see throughout the scriptures, I want to give you an overview of it throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter 18, we'll pick it up in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, these words will be on the screen. It says this, Genesis 18 verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him, now the him there in the passage is Abraham, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So these are three men that Abraham does not know, that Abraham has no relationship with as far as we know. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So clearly, Abraham knows that there is a spiritual element to what is happening here. There there is a deeply spiritual thing happening in this moment for Abraham. He says, verse 4, Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So Abraham says, listen, let me serve you. Even though you're just passing through, even though you have nothing to offer in return, even though you can't pay for this, let me wash your feet, get you a glass of water and some bread. So they said, do as you have said. Look at verse six. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three measures of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. That line kind of makes me laugh because I can't imagine there are many women in the room that would appreciate that tone. Your husband just walked in from work and he's like, quick woman, where's my food? Uh, But that's kind of what he says. Verse seven, and Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good. That's such a weird translation. Tender and good. Gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. So he, he kills a calf. The text says was tender and good. This is veal, like organic, free range, grass fed, hormone free veal. Verse eight. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay. What's happening here in this story? These are three strange men journeying through a land. And what does Abraham do? He does something that is extremely countercultural. He drops everything he's doing. He recognizes that this is a spiritual moment, an opportunity to extend love to a stranger, and he cooks this incredible meal. He welcomes the stranger, literally. Turn to your right to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. 
We'll put these words on the screen as well. The entire book of Leviticus is basically this long list of rules for the the Israelite people. So you have sacrificial laws and ceremonial laws and social laws. And then you get to chapter 19 and look at verse 33. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Now that word stranger in your Bible could also be translated alien or foreigner or immigrant. This is someone from somewhere else that you do not know and have no connection to. You shall treat, verse 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a what? What does the text say? As a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. So a foreigner should be treated like what? Like a native. Like someone who was born here and raised here. Now, don't let your mind run all political here. Okay, we're just reading the Bible. No need to involve politics in what the Bible says. Just take it for what it says. For, here's why, this is what the command is rooted in. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it says, here's why you extend hospitality, love for the stranger. Because you were a stranger once too. Turn to your right again. New Testament, Matthew Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus speaking here. And he's talking about that future day of judgment when we will all stand before him and give an account. Now, Jesus was the most hospitable person to ever walk the face of the earth. He has some authority to speak on this issue. He says this in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Man, I hope to hear those words someday. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Don't miss that line. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Don't miss this. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So pay attention here. How we treat the stranger and the lowly and the outcast is directly indicative to how we treat Jesus himself. What we do to the least of these, we do to Jesus personally. Again, to your right, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is Jesus' first public sermon. He says this in verse 16, Luke writing, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So Jesus has been traveling around. He's performing miracles. And and word about this Messiah is spreading. But now he comes back to his hometown, where he was brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So Jesus, he goes to the prophet Isaiah, and he picks a specific text. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is kind of a pivotal moment in the gospel of Luke. This is Jesus' mission statement. It's why he came to earth. He says this, reading from this prophet. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads this amazing messianic prophecy written hundreds of years before. And then watch what he does in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Pretty short sermon. Now we read that and we may not think anything of it. But if you keep reading in Luke chapter 4, the crowd that hears this sermon of Jesus, they try to kill him. They get so angry, like foaming at the mouth, mob mentality, angry, that they run him out of town and try to push him off a cliff. Why? Why would they do that? Well, because of what he just said. It confronted their idea of what the Messiah was going to be like. So Jesus basically says, listen, I didn't just come for the wealthy Jewish man. I didn't come to only extend love and care for the put together and the religious and the well-behaved. I also came for the poor and the prisoner and the oppressed and the physically disabled. And that makes them so mad that they tried to kill Jesus. When we taught through the Gospel of Luke in Hillsborough a couple of years ago, and we made it to this passage, I wanted to help the congregation that I pastor. I wanted to help them understand the weight of what Jesus was saying here. I wanted them to feel what the original audience would have felt when Jesus read these words. So I I took the liberty to rewrite this. Now, I know that's dangerous ground when you're rewriting the words of Jesus, uh, but I want to read those words to you. And just know these are Justin's words. This isn't the Bible. I think it's rooted in the scriptures, but I just have to clarify that so you don't run me out as a heretic and never let me back in. So let let me read to you what I think this would have sounded like to our ears and our culture today. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes and listen to this. So close your eyes. This is what the sermon may have sounded like out of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has sent me to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the people all around us who live in abject poverty, the ones who can't afford heat in the winter and cram multiple families into a small apartment in an effort to survive, for they are the future of the kingdom. The Lord has appointed me to go to the flunkouts, the dropouts, and the burnedouts, the broke and brokenhearted. I came for the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged and the incurably ill. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to those in prison, to the abuser, the rapist, the thief, the child molester, the drunk, the meth addict. I will restore sight to the blind, healing for the sick, and comfort for the lonely. I came for the infertile, the barren, the father who abandoned his family, and the mother who is pregnant too many times at all the wrong times. I am for the student who keeps failing the same class over and over, but I am also for the valedictorian whose identity is wrapped up in how intelligent she is. Wonderful news for single moms, for widows, the unborn, orphans, and foster kids, because God is head over heels in love with them. I am proclaiming good news to all people for the refugee, the illegal immigrant, the migrant worker that labors in the fields for 14 hours a day. Salvation is available to the handicapped, the special needs, the deformed, for they are the object of God's affections. My grace is available to the same-sex attracted man, to the gender-confused teenage girl, or to the college student who is addicted to pornography. May God shine his face on the incompetent, the unintelligent, and the outcast. May the abused, the raped, the assaulted, and the neglected find comfort in my kingdom. My favor will be on all people who turn from their sin and place their faith in me, regardless of their ethnicity, their sin struggle, their background, or their socioeconomic status. There is now redemption for the lowly, the destitute, forgotten, and ignored by society. The kingdom of God. The gracious healing presence of God is extended to them right here and right now through me. 
Okay, look, look up here. The kingdom of Jesus, as he established it, is for all people. All people. Jesus declared it, he modeled it, and he commands it of us. Again, to your right, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Some have entertained angels unaware. It, it reminds me, didn't even grow up around church culture. Remember the Newsboys song, Entertaining Angel? A few of you. I said this last week in Beaverton, and no one raised their hand. I felt like such an idiot. <laughs> like, I'm the only like, kid that, yeah, grew up in the 90s in youth group. There's this song, Entertaining Angels, and there's a line that says, like, entertaining angels by the light of my TV screen, 24-7, you wait for me. And so, anyway, some people hear that song or they read this passage and they say, like, you need to be nice to everyone. You never know. They might be an angel. Okay, maybe that's true. I'm not convinced that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at here. I don't think the point is, like, be nice to everyone because they might be an angel. I think the point is just be hospitable. Like, just do not neglect to show hospitality to all people. We could do this all morning, but let me just rattle off a few more. You don't have to turn there. There are literally dozens of stories we just skipped over throughout the Gospels of Jesus extending hospitality to others. Luke is full of these stories in his Gospel. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us to seek to show hospitality to all people. You get to 1 Timothy and Titus when Paul is listing the qualifications for elders, and on that short list of qualifications, hospitality makes it in both places. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, Peter encourages the believers that are living in exile to show hospitality without grumbling. Over and over again in the Bible, we see that hospitality is not optional for us as followers of Jesus. It's not optional. Rather, hospitality is intrinsic to following Jesus. It's a combo deal. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we looked at a lot of passages, but let me try to bring this all together. When we talk about hospitality as Colossae, What do we mean? What is biblical hospitality? Well, this is one of those rare situations where I think looking at the original Greek word is actually incredibly helpful. So I want to show this to you so you see where this word comes from. The word hospitality comes from this Greek word. It's a compound word in the Greek, philoxenia. Philoxenia. It's made up of two different words. The first word up there is philo. Think of uh, Philadelphia. The word means brotherly love city of brotherly love. The second word is xenia, which means stranger or other. It's where we get the word xenophobia, the fear of strangers or the fear of the other. So at its most basic form, here's a definition of biblical hospitality. It is love, care, and concern for the stranger. Love, care, and concern for the stranger. It is that simple. Biblical hospitality is love, care, concern for the traveler, the foreigner, the outcast, the marginalized, to those we have not yet met. But friends, that is a much different way of thinking about hospitality for those of us that grew up in suburban culture in the West. We think of hospitality as entertainment most of the time. Christine Pohl and her seminal work on biblical hospitality makes this distinction. I'll read you this quote. She says this, today, when we think of hospitality, we don't first think of welcoming strangers. We picture having friends or family over for a pleasant meal 
Or when we think of the hospitality, or we think of the hospitality industry of hotels or, and restaurants, which are open to strangers as long as they have money. In any case, today, most understandings of hospitality have a minimal moral component. Hospitality is a nice extra if we have time or the resources, but we rarely view it as a dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity, a dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity. Rosaria Butterfield, who wrote a fantastic book on hospitality, says it this way, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Church family, we must recover this ancient practice. Okay, so if that's what biblical hospitality is, so what? What does that mean for us? Like, how do we... How do we practice biblical hospitality? A few practical thoughts. If you take notes, we'll put these on the screen for you. First practical thought, recognize that something in your life may need to die. If you're going to take seriously this invitation into practicing biblical hospitality, you need to recognize that something in you may need to die. For some of you in the room, what needs to die is your desire for comfort and peace and harmony in your home at all times. Like for you, like your home is your refuge. This is the safe place. And and to invite other people in, especially other people who may have chaotic lives, it feels scary to you. And listen, I get it. Like our home is refuge for us. It is a place of peace. My wife works really hard at that. But if your desire for comfort in your home interferes with your ability to extend hospitality, then it needs to die in you. For some of you, what needs to die is your fear of strangers Like you have a legitimate fear of the other, of the immigrant, of the refugee, of the person who speaks a different language. Maybe for you, you would just say, well, I'm just an introvert. I don't like talking to new people. I get that too. I'm an introvert. But if that interferes with your ability to extend hospitality to others, then it needs to die in you. Maybe what needs to die in you is your fear of the unknown. My wife and I are adoptive parents. We've adopted two. Our five-year-old, we adopted from West Africa, the nation of Ghana. Our youngest, she's a year and a half, we adopted from the great nation of Texas. <laughs> and uh, we encounter people all the time who, who will say to us, and I think they mean well, but they'll say something to the extent of, man, we'd love to adopt someday, but we're just kind of scared. We either are scared because we don't know how we're going to pay for it because it's expensive, or we're scared because we don't know what type of child we're going to get and how that will impact our family. Which, side note, as if you know what kind of child you're going to get biologically. But like, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But it's like a fear that we have of like, oh, if you get a child that has special needs or behavioral issues, listen, maybe God is like pulling you towards adoption or foster care or towards safe families or something like that. And the thing that needs to die in you is your fear of the unknown. And Let me just press in a little bit more because, again, I feel like we're family. For some of you in the room, maybe what needs to die is your selfishness. Maybe you are so dang selfish that you can't even see beyond your own needs to the needs that are happening all around you. And you need to pray that the Holy Spirit just kills that in you. Recognize that something in your life may need to die. Second thought this morning. Don't underestimate the power of a shared meal. 
Don't underestimate the power of a shared meal. One of the things I talk to my congregation in Hillsborough about a lot is the spirituality of eating together, which I love that you guys are headed to do a potluck after this. this is so perfect. All throughout the Bible, but especially in the Gospels, meals are central to the way of Jesus. One commentator I read said that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either headed to a meal, coming from a meal, or he is at a meal. Like that is basically a theme of the Gospel of Luke. Tim Chester wrote an amazing book called A Meal with Jesus, and in it he says this, Food matters. Meals matter. Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share meals and have a passion for Jesus, then you will be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message. But meals will create a natural opportunity to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you are saying. And friends, when we look at the early church, this is how the early church grew around the dinner table. For the first 400 years of Christianity, they didn't have church buildings. Now, we live in the West where like church planting is you go into a town and you find an event center or something and and you move in, you put up pipe and drape. But like when Paul went to, you know, Berea, for example, he didn't look for an event center or a high school to put up pipe and drape. No, they, they met in a home for 400 years. That's how the church grew and spread. And now I'm not bringing that up as like a moral judgment on the way we do church in the West. I'm not even saying we scrap what we do. We, in Hillsborough, we do a very similar Sunday morning gathering. What I am saying is that we need to, to try to recapture or regain the beauty of just eating together. See, we've somehow bought into this way of thinking that somehow eating a meal with someone is less spiritual than praying with that person or reading our Bible with that person. And I would say to you, if you think that eating a meal is less spiritual than prayer, then you haven't read your Bible enough. Eating is all throughout the scriptures. Chef and theologian Simon Carey Holt describes it this way. It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and every day it is easily overlooked as a place of ministry. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. It is ordinary, it is not glamorous, but it is incredibly, incredibly effective in the kingdom. Final thought this morning. Final thought. Just start somewhere. Tomorrow morning, just get up and take one step towards biblical hospitality. Who are the people in your life right now that are strangers, but that should not be strangers? Who are the people in your life that are strangers that should not be neighbors that you've kept at an arm's length, coworkers you avoid by taking the long walk around the office, immigrants, refugees, people in your class that look differently than you? And here's a helpful way to keep this on the forefront of your mind this week. Notice the empty chairs around you right now. Like look around in front of you, beside you, the empty chairs. Now think about dinner later tonight. You're eating dinner. Think about the empty chairs around your dinner table. Every empty chair in your life is symbolic of a missed opportunity to extend biblical hospitality. It's a missed opportunity to invite someone in, to be a part of the community of God's people. You never know what hangs in the balance of a single invitation. You never know what hangs in the, in the balance of a single invitation. We saw this play out in a really, really beautiful way in Hillsborough last year. There's a gal in our church named Carrie Fay, and one night Carrie and a bunch of her friends went out dancing. They were line dancing at Bushwhackers, which is over here on y'all's side of town. Some of you know, know the place. I'm nodding along. 
Amen. Um, so they're at Bushwhackers, and she's there dancing with her friends, and there's a guy in the room. His name's Daniel. She didn't know Daniel. I'd never met Daniel. But Daniel noticed her from across the room, and in his mind, he's thinking, oh, there's a pretty girl. I should ask her to dance. So he walks across the room. He asks her to dance. What he didn't realize in that moment is that his life was about to be eternally altered. Because Carrie Faye is one of the most hospitable people I've ever met in my life. To quote Butterfield from earlier, she sees strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. And so she danced with Daniel that night. And then afterwards, they exchanged numbers and she invited him to go to church that Sunday. Daniel shows up in his mid-30s to church for the first time and he hears the gospel. He shows up again the next week and the next week. Several months later, Daniel becomes a follower of Jesus and asks to be baptized. And then that summer, a few months later, I had one of just the most proud, joyful moments I think a pastor could have when I got to stand by and watch someone else baptize Daniel. Here's a picture of that day. This is Carrie baptizing Daniel. And I stood there with tears in my eyes rejoicing at kind of the end of the story of biblical hospitality. Now, Daniel is a key part of our church. He's actually considered, he lives on the east side of Portland, so he's going to be part of our east side congregation, which is so cool to see that even continue. Friends, you never know what hangs in the balance of a single invitation to dinner, to coffee, to a Sunday morning gathering. We invite people to the table. We invite them into community. We invite them to this gathering because in doing so, we are introducing them to a heavenly father who loves them dearly. So in summary, Ask God what needs to die in you. Don't underestimate the power of a shared meal and just start somewhere. Every empty chair in your life is symbolic of a missed opportunity to extend hospitality. Now, as we wrap up and prepare our hearts for the tables of communion, I would be remiss if I didn't explain the why behind hospitality. Because at the end of the day, if we welcome the stranger, we love the outcast, we care for the marginalized, it means nothing Absolutely nothing unless it is deeply rooted in the gospel, unless it is deeply rooted in the good news of Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 15. This will be the last passage we look at. Romans chapter 15, Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as or because Christ has welcomed you. In other words, the reason we welcome others is because God has first welcomed us. The reason we invite the stranger into our family is because God has first adopted us into his family. The reason we prepare a seat at the table for a neighbor is because God has prepared a seat for us at his table. The reason we extend bold and generous and at times inconvenient hospitality to others is because God has extended bold, dangerous, and inconvenient hospitality to us. In just a moment, when we come to the tables of communion, we come not as givers of hospitality, but as really grateful recipients of God's hospitality. Not as givers of grace, but as humble recipients of God's extraordinary grace. We come to the tables not as hosts, but as joyful guests of the table. So may the bread and the cup this morning remind you of the invitation that's been extended to you in the gospel. And may the gospel compel you forward into a lifestyle of biblical hospitality. Let me pray for us, and then we will respond in worship and communion. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. I'm so grateful to be a part of this morning with these people, believing, God, that even though there are some in the room that I do not recognize and have not yet met, that we are united together with one another as the family of God.
and that we have been united to you. God, I pray that you would form us into a people of hospitality, that we would see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God, and that we would invite someone into your family this week. God, thank you for your grace, for Jesus. As we go to the tables, would you remind us of the good news that we are far more loved and accepted than we could ever dare to hope in this moment. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.